You are listening to the Working Dog Collective podcast. I'm your host, Holly, of Holly Crook Photography, based in Seattle, Washington. This is a listener-supported podcast, and details about how you can support this podcast for as little as $5 a month are provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining me on this journey of exploration into the world of working dogs. Let's get to work. I'm Kyoko Johnson. My dog's name is Solo. And I have my own business called Country Canine LLC, but I also run a nonprofit called Conservation Dogs of Hawaii. I'm a conservation detection dog trainer and handler. Um, I also teach scent work to pet dogs and their owners. That's fascinating that you can teach scent work to pet dogs. Um, of all of the people that I've had on, all the guests that I've had on the podcast so far, no one has told me that they are willing to step out of their, or their working dog job to help pet dogs learn how to, how to do this. So let's start at the beginning. Um, what inspired you to partner with the dog to do the work that you're doing? So to be honest, um, the way that I got into working with detection dogs um, was through pet dogs, uh, I went to a conference on the mainland uh, for pet dog trainers, and I saw a seminar being taught where all breeds from French bulldogs to chihuahuas to poodles <laughs> were being trained to do scent detection for fun. Mm -hmm. And they looked like they were having a blast and they were actually good at it. So um, I went home to try it with my pet dog, Luca, a golden retriever who didn't really like the usual you know, dog things. He didn't mm -hmm. like fetching balls. He didn't like other dogs. He didn't like swimming, but he loved the scent work and he gained a lot of confidence doing it. And I was fascinated by it too, just learning about how dogs use their olfactory system to locate something. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I got started with it. And I think because the dogs enjoy it so much and you could just see the joy in their body language when they're hunting, that's really what inspired me to do this uh, detection dog work. So Luca didn't read the book on how to be a golden retriever and decided he was no. not going to be your typical golden retriever. And you just decided to try scent detection with him and it worked? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Um, at the time, I was just teaching regular pet dog training um, to the community. I wasn't teaching scent work. But once I did that with Luca and he enjoyed it so much. I thought, you know, I must share this with other people in the community. I know they'll enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what I started doing is teaching um, scent work classes um, and they do enjoy it. I, I still get, you know, lots of students joining just to have fun with their dog and develop a, you know, a strong relationship with them. Yeah. It, it does strengthen the bond between the dog and the partner, the human partner, um, because you have to learn to communicate with your dog. You also have to learn to listen to your dog, which is super important. I think that's a step that a lot of people overlook, but you do have to learn how to listen to your dog. So just for clarification, um, the actual work that you do is, uh, is in Hawaii and you look for avian botulism, devilweed, rodents and mongoose, and then you had a program for melon flies, correct? Yes, that's um, so definitely some of the projects that we're working on. Okay. Um, before uh, doing all of that work, I had started um, working at the local wind farms on Oahu. Mm -hmm. um, right around the same time that I started teaching pet dogs, I got hired by the wind farm to train some dogs and look for bird and bat carcasses mm -hmm. um, just to monitor the impact that the wind farms had on these species. So I kind of took the parallel paths and... Um, 
now like after doing that type of work for a while, um, I got to know, understand a little bit more about the biology and the conservation needs in Hawaii. So um, I left the wind farm and pursued uh, other work, got to know more biologists and talked to different agencies and stuff like that. And yeah, here we are doing invasive plants and melon fly, which is an agricultural pest. Um, mm -hmm. We just did a short pilot project uh, to see if the dogs could sniff that out. Mm -hmm. um, and a few other things. The rodent and mongoose program is still in the early stages. We're mm -hmm. training some dogs and we're trying to develop an operational program at this point. How long have you been doing this work? I started pet dog training in, I think, 2008 and okay. started the Sant Orcs soon after. So uh, I guess that would be 13 years or so. And you have Not done- Not very long, actually. Dog well, I mean, in dog years, it's a long time, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So what you have done is really unique. Uh, you have taken your professional life as a scent detection dog handler and trainer, and you have also taken your professional life as a pet dog trainer, and you have combined them so that you can involve your community in the work that you do. And I was doing a little bit of research online, and you actually have volunteer dogs that are out looking for devil weed. So can you explain to me, first of all, what is devil weed? Because we don't have that in Seattle. Well, there's three parts to this question. Secondly, how do you train pet dogs for searching for devil weed? And thirdly, has this been successful for you? Sure. So devil weed is an invasive plant um, that's found, um, I think it originally was, it came from Asia. Mm -hmm. um, it was brought into Hawaii through the military somehow into the training areas and Oops. it's kind of started to spread on Oahu and a couple of the other islands, but um, it's an invasive plant. It's toxic to uh, livestock, so it's very important to you know, get control of it so that it doesn't go into agricultural areas and, you know, affect the livestock or the economy. Okay. Um, so it's a high priority target for the Oahu Invasive Species Committee, which is the main um, agency, along with the Army Natural Resource Program, who uh, works on detecting that plant. Um, so a few years ago, um, I you know, I had been teaching pet dog scent work for a while. I had been doing work with the wind farm and other um, ecological projects uh, on my own. And I thought, you know, how fun would it be to involve my scent work students in this type of work? Um, you know, they know how to train their dogs to find a target odor. A lot of them are always telling me, you know, I need a, jo a job for my dog. Mm -hmm. They're always wanting to do stuff. Right, so I said, okay, well, maybe I'll contact the Invasive Species Committee and ask if there's something that might be appropriate for mm -hmm. the pet dogs to do. Um, so I spoke with the manager over at the Invasive Species Group and um, at first they were a little bit um, hesitant because they didn't know who we were. They didn't know what the dogs could do. Um, and so they suggested that we do a little proof of concept project using a native plant. Okay. Um, so that, you know, there wasn't any issue with spreading the invasive um, species accidentally. So we used a plant called Akia, a native plant, and the dogs learned it no problem. I think we had about 10 or 15 uh, dog handlers teams doing that. We wow. ran some, you know, simple odor recognition tests and very small field trials and the dog teams just rocked it. So we compiled that information and sent it back to the invasive species group. And, you know, they were 
excited to hear that. So they said, okay, great. We're going to get you the um, invasive plant devil weed to start training the dogs with. So wow. that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And of course, you know, we're very careful to make sure that if it's flowering season, you know, we clip the um, seeds and flowers off of the plant, burn them, you know, that type of thing. So mm -hmm. we take um, safety precautions, but um, this plant in particular is pretty stinky. Like I can smell it too, if it's up close. Really? So it was a perfect um, target. Yeah. For the dogs. The other reason that it's a good target for the dogs is that it's found off of um, hiking trails that are open to the public. So, you know, rather than getting a permit to access a area or having to take a helicopter or rappel down cliffs or, you know, that type of thing, we could just go on a hike with our dog and contribute yeah. to conservation. Would you, do you deem your, would you deem this program with civilian dogs, pet dogs, successful in finding devil weed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we first started, I mean, I knew that the dogs could detect it and mm -hmm. um, we would find plants, but I didn't know how helpful it would be in conjunction with the existing, you know, efforts to visually locate them. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of volunteers and um, environmental conservation agency staff are already out there looking for it visually. Um, and it's not like a invisible fungus or something that you can't see or confirm. Yeah. So I didn't know how helpful the dogs would be, but, um, you know, at this point, the dogs are locating targets that are, you know, up to 60 meters away. I mean, something that a human definitely couldn't see right. uh, or behind thick bushes or something like that. Right. So I definitely feel that it's successful and it's, we're just, um, it's just the tip of the iceberg, I think. It's amazing. So first you had to prove that the dogs could do it. And now the dogs are excelling at doing it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. of course, it takes a lot of work, training and handler training, dog training. But, you know, I feel like if they do the right thing and you know, we pick the right dogs to participate in the program, then, yeah, they can definitely succeed. And how many pet dogs do you have currently looking for devil weed? So right now we have seven volunteer dogs, um, five handlers, and some of them are running multiple dogs. So it's seven dogs and five handlers. And then um, my own dogs, I started training them on devil weed again because they're kind of between paid jobs. Mm -hmm. So it gives them something to do as well. So That's, we have nine dogs. I love how you took the two, the two passions in your life and you've combined them together and you're sharing that, that passion with other people who might not normally have an outlet for their dog, knowing that their dog needs a job, but not knowing exactly how you know, to fulfill that need for their dog. Um, I know up here, we get a lot of dogs from Texas and Oklahoma who are in that position where, you know, they need a job, but their owners just don't have the wherewithal or the understanding to give the dog a job and they end up in the shelter. So not only are you doing your conservation work, but you may be saving dogs from the shelter. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, not all the pet dogs are suited, suited for, you know, field work and hiking mm -hmm. on trails, or maybe the dog handler has some physical limitations. So, you know, we try to pick dogs that are suited for specific um, applications. Mm -hmm. For example, the Melon Fly Agricultural Pest Project didn't involve, you know, climbing mountains and hiking trails. It just required um, training the dogs on scent detection boxes, mm -hmm. um, like a set of five to 10 boxes and alerting on the correct box. So, you know, for dogs that maybe didn't have the physical stamina or maybe the handlers um, has bad knees or something, they could participate in 
a different type of project like that. What a confidence boost for both of them, for the dog and the handler to be able to do something like that. We may have to do a podcast just about that particular part of your job because I'm just, I'm just so fascinated that you're allowing the community in, giving them tools and then letting them go out into their community and help. It's just a lovely circle that you've created. Well, yeah, I don't know about other places, but in Hawaii, you know, there's not a lot of funding for um, conservation dog projects. Mm-hmm. The projects are few and far between. So yeah. that was another reason to involve the pet dogs because I don't have a kennel full of working dogs that all have full-time jobs, mm-hmm. you know, but there's still so many things that I want to help with. So, yeah. you know, to involve the community um, was like a good way to solve that problem. And how did you, like, how do you find the dogs in the community that want to do this work? Do people come to you or do you have to go out and look for them? They come to me. So because I teach pet dog scent work classes, you know, um, some students will be with me for a few years and, you know, suddenly I'll realize, oh, I think this dog might be really good for Mm -hmm. this new project that we have. So I'll talk to the owner and see if they want to get involved. Um, Sometimes they don't, um, and often they do. Um, some people also contact me because they heard about our programs um, and they want to get involved. Um, unfortunately, we can't, you know, accept every volunteer or potential volunteer that contacts us because it does require, you know, a background in scent detection, right. um, at least a year or so. So Thanks. we do ask that they, yeah, do that first and then hopefully they can get involved. We could talk about this all day because it's such a unique extension of conservation dog work that nobody has done before that I'm aware of. Thanks. I think there is one other person um, in Australia, uh, Luke, I can't remember his last name, who might be um, training volunteer dog handler teams as well. Mm-hmm. But um, you're right, I don't hear about this um, happening very much in the world. Yeah. Let's talk about Solo. Solo is a nine-year-old yellow lab. Where did you get him? I actually adopted him from one of the wind farms where I worked on the island of Oahu. He um, originally came from California. He was supposed to become a search and rescue dog, but he switched careers because the wind farms contacted this um, search and rescue trainer and asked if, um, you know, they could be purchased for wind farm. So three dogs came over here from California, Solo being one of them, and his brother Murphy is another one. Um, And I was working at the wind farm with a different dog at the time, but once the um, the detection dog program switched from like a high intensity monitoring effort to a low intensity one, meaning they had to do less searching and less area, they decided to adopt out the dogs instead of keeping them as company dogs. Mm. So um, the program manager asked me if I wanted to adopt solo. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at the time, my husband was like, no way, the dogs, the working dogs are crazy. <laughs> They're going to, you know, destroy our house and yeah. no way. So I said, okay, well, let's just do a foster and adopt um, or foster for a week and see how it goes. And um, of course, my husband fell in love with him. I loved Solo too. So Aww. that's how he ended up becoming our dog. Yeah. That's amazing. So Solo has been a working dog for his entire life. He's just, what does he search for now? So right now, between jobs, um, I'm training him on devil weed, the okay. invasive plant. But prior to that, up until December of last year, um, he was searching for yellow crazy ants. That's a type of invasive ant that can um, be very destructive to seabirds, especially the ones that are on the ground 
um, because this ant sprays a toxic acid that kind of burns their skin. Yeah, so the ground nesting birds, the babies can't fly away and the, the mommies and daddies fly away to get away from the ants. And then so the chicks end up dying. It's really horrible. Oh. So um, yeah, we prepared all year to go to Johnston Atoll. Uh, it's a national wildlife refuge kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, so we took a boat uh, three and a half days each way and surveyed the entire, or not the entire island, but the infestation area to look for those ants. And you found We them, did correct? not find any, which is a good oh, thing. Good. We did not actually. So the deal was that um, the ants infested this island um, starting about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and the US Fish and Wildlife and all their volunteers and staff did a lot of work to get rid of the ants. And so the ants hadn't been seen since uh, maybe 2017. But before they just ended the entire program, they wanted to take the dogs there and do one last check um, just because they were concerned that there were, you know, ants hiding out somewhere that the humans couldn't see. So mm -hmm. it was an additional tool to give them confidence that the ants were actually gone. So he did, he is trained on crazy ants and he is trained on devil weed. Is there anything else that he looks for? Sure. So, um, we kind of tend to do short-term projects and then move on to the next project. So rather than, you know, him having a, you know, full-time long-term job, mm -hmm. um, we kind of go from job to job. So prior to the Yellow Crazy Ants, we worked on a, an efficacy study to see how the dogs would do looking for uh, endangered Hawaiian duck carcasses. So that was on the island of Kauai. And, um, the purpose of that was to curb avian botulism. Mm -hmm. So it's a foodborne disease where, um, you know, the toxin uh, concentrates in inver invertebrates. And so the ducks eat those invertebrates and then they get sick. And then once the duck dies and the flies lay eggs on them and the maggots grow, then those maggots are toxic. And mm -hmm. then other ducks eating the maggots off of them kind of spreads that um, disease of botulism. Right. So it's very important to get rid of the carcasses um, as soon as possible so it doesn't affect other ducks. Yeah. So that's um, a project that he was involved in. Um, so he's trained on that as well. I'm sure he'll remember it if he encounters a duck carcass now. Yeah. The, my understanding of avian botulism is that it actually paralyzes the birds and they starve to It them. does. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. yeah. they can't move. Sometimes their head falls into the water and then they drown. So you and Solo have been working together for how long? For about six years. I adopted him when he was three and he's nine, uh, nine right now. Okay. So about six years. And what do you think is the most successful or the biggest accomplishment you've done together as a team? As a team? Mm -hmm. I would say the avian botulism project um, at Hanalei that I just mentioned mm -hmm. was quite successful. Solo was the top performer of the four dogs that were involved in the study. Wow. And um, yeah, so we were conducting daily surveillance in the refuge as well as um, participating in a final blind trial mm -hmm. that was timed um, to assess the teams. And he scored top, I think, in all of them. And um, he wasn't just partnered with me. There were other handlers as well. So, okay. you know, Solo, I feel, did a good job. There you go. <laughs> I don't think I've interviewed a working dog team that had uh, testing done at the end of their job. So that's a very good measure of how successful your dog actually is once they're out of the field. So that's really cool. 
what is the best thing about the work that you do with your dog? So is it, is it that you're doing the work with the, your dog or is it that you're doing conservation work with your dog? Like what is it that makes it amazing to be with your dog and doing the work that you're doing? Mm, yeah, I think it would be both um, the fact that the dog enjoys it so much and is so ready to do this anytime um, as well as the fact that we're contributing to, you know, science or mm -hmm. conservation through yeah. it. Because um, if I weren't doing the conservation dog work, I'd still have to walk the dogs and train the dogs and, you know, but right. <laughs> rather than just doing it as a chore, we can do it, you know, towards, you know, a goal. So that's exciting for me. And I think for the dog, you know, just having a purpose is nice mm -hmm. as well. Now, do you think that Solo has the working dog drive within him? Do you think if he wasn't a working dog, he would be, be a challenge if he were just a household pet? Right, so he definitely has the working drive. Um, he comes from working lines. Uh, he's a field bred lab, so he constantly wants to work. Um, even if we're just out for a sniff walk, you know, mm -hmm. it's like he's working and he's very serious. Um, so I think, I don't know, he's actually pretty good uh, when we're between jobs or if I'm too busy to do much with him. He doesn't ever complain. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do any excessive barking or getting destructive or anything like that. Um, he does get a little, you know, antsy, yeah. <laughs> but he's pretty, um, he's pretty patient. But yeah, I try to do as much as I can with him because he definitely could work every day if, if I had the time to work him. Even at nine years old, he still wants to work. Yeah, yeah. That's and amazing. actually, I think one of your, you know, questions was um, whether, you know, I can tell when he needs a break or if he needs to rest. Pretty much that never happens because I'm always tired before he is, even at nine years old. So, you know, over the years, I've developed a really good working relationship with him. And I think I've gotten to know um, his search style and his general preferences pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, he's always wanting to work. So um, that's really fun for me to see him mm -hmm. always being excited. He's really up for anything, you know, I can really push him because he has solid nerves and, you know, a lot of drives. So for example, you know, if we have to travel by freight ship to some weird place, you know, that's new to him, or we have to bushwhack through thick vegetation, he's up for anything. It's kind of nice to be able to um, not be concerned that, you know, he might not want to do something. Mm -hmm. So um, I really respect him for that. And as far as um, just what I've learned about him, um, because he's a field lab, he, you know, he'd probably much rather work off leash and run around and use the wind and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm sure he'd actually love to be a bird dog, a bird hunting dog, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's not what we do. We search for other things and mm -hmm. he, you know, he kind of um, is okay with that. I think one of the things that, you know, um, working wise that I've kind of developed with him is how to work him on leash and what he'll, um, how, how he'll work like that. Because a lot of the environments that we work in, like National Wildlife Refuges, you can't just let the dog run off leash and disturb the birds and stuff like that. So we do a lot of long line work. Mm -hmm. And uh, while he'd rather be off leash, he tolerates the leash really well. And you know, just like every movement of the leash, like how much tension I put on it, um, when, when I stop and, you know, he knows exactly what I want him to do. So he knows if I want him to 
uh, slow down a little bit or stop or you know start moving and whether it's slow or fast um, he has learned to read that really well so i feel really comfortable working him in different environments and um, while the leash might not seem like a communication tool it really is uh, yeah with this type of work so totally is we have a good leash bond <laughs> well i have a um a friend that is a has a scent detection dog and his goal is to work with his dog during the day and never say a word he, he he wants to have this this tight bond with his dog that that is so incredibly close that he doesn't even have to talk to the dog but the dog knows what he wants and he knows what the dog wants and so like that is the gold bar standard for me as far as working dog partners do you think you could go out and work for a day and not say a word to the dog but still be able to get the work done I think so. I mean, there are a few um, cues that I use throughout, you know, the working day, like, you know, leave it or wait, but uh, most of it is done without talking. And um, yeah, I absolutely agree with your friend um, that the less you talk, the probably the better right. it is. Well, especially in your, in the work that you're doing, um, because you guys are among um, birds quite a bit, nesting birds. And you have to be quiet when you're working with nesting birds. And I was reading on your website that um, you don't reward 100% of the time with the ball. Sometimes you have to reward with a treat because you have to be quiet so you don't disturb the nesting birds for several reasons. But one being that um, baby birds are uh, very susceptible to the sun and to heat without their parents sitting on them. And so if you disrupt the, the nesting pattern, you know, you're putting the baby birds at risk. So is Solo a is does he have ball drive or does he have to drive he loves the toy but he actually i work him with food mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess being a labrador yeah. you know, <laughs> what, what labrador doesn't like food right right so like yeah french actually, fries <laughs> <laughs> um when, when he used to work at the wind farm i think they all, all use toys but you know with the heat and the humidity and the long hours here the dogs were getting a little bit tired um and of course you can do the variable reward schedule and all that, but you still need to reward them, um, yeah. you know. So um, they did switch to food. The dogs worked really well for him. And I've kind of just stuck to that with mm -hmm. Solo. And do the dogs tell you which reward they would prefer? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. in the early stages, I mean, you can tell what they prefer. Uh, my other dog, Guinness, actually, he's a shepherd mix. And um, I started him out with food thinking, well, yeah, most pet dogs, they like food better than toy. And he just wasn't very enthusiastic. And I was thinking, oh, no, he's not going to work out as a working dog. He's a washout. But then Aww. I switched to food, I mean, to toy, and suddenly he just lit up and just searched with a lot more enthusiasm. And so to this day, we use the toy for him. Right. So yeah, there's definitely um, assessment um, of reward preference in the early stages with each dog. And so the the reward that they prefer actually dictates which job they're going to do because you can't take a ball drive dog out into the into a bird nest area. You could. I mean, so a lot of dogs will work for either food or toy. Okay. Um, like Ko Koa, who is a black lab that's currently working at the Hanalei Refuge that I'm helping to train. He likes both ball and food and will work for either just as um, well. Okay. So that's really the ideal kind of dog um, so that it's more flexible. Okay. Um, I would say, yeah, if the dog absolutely will only work for toy and will spit out hot dogs because they don't want the hot dog, right. which actually there are dogs like that. 
um, that might not be suitable at a you know wildlife refuge with a bunch mm -hmm. of birds. I mean, I'm sure there's workarounds, but it wouldn't be as right. easy as just rewarding the right. food. Yeah, and that's not the best job suited for that dog if he prefers the ball. So you'd go into a, a, a place where, let's say, you're searching for devil weed. Like that's that's easy. The dog finds the devil weed. You can toss the ball, and you're not disrupting anything. Because I I really think that the because you're on a small space versus a wide open space, you have to be careful with how your dogs behave in these areas because uh, conservation is super important in Hawaii because you you live on an island, right? And there's only so much space in which you can work. Whereas out here, I mean, we've got all of this space. So the dogs the dogs are free to run after balls or toys and be as crazy as they wanna be. Um, be most, of the, and most of the working dog teams that, that I have interviewed so far have been in the United States or in the UK where they do have a lot of room to run. So when there's a dog with a ball drive, it's no question, okay, this dog is gonna work because he has ball drive. Whereas I think you have to be a little more conscientious about that because of the environments in which you're working. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, even with ball or toy reward dogs, it's not just um, chasing a ball. Some dogs like tug toy, which you, you can do in a smaller area, mm -hmm. or some dogs like to just possess the toy um, oh. instead of necessarily interactive play. But, um, you know, in a wildlife refuge environment, sometimes we're required to put a muzzle on the dog for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. And so you, you couldn't even quietly give the right. toy to the dog without taking the muzzle off. That's where treats come in because treats will fit right through those muzzles. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. So you have a lot of different variables to work with that conservation dogs in the United States and the mainland really don't think about because I, as far as I know, on the mainland, we don't have to muzzle the dogs to go into wildlife refuge areas. So this is a, an interesting twist on the work that you have to do. So you'd have to figure out how to reward the dog if they can't have their ball or their toy. Yeah, and then actually in places like New Zealand, they um, use a lot of muzzles and because um, the dogs look for endangered birds or, mm -hmm. you know, the terriers are going into areas with, you know, protected birds and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of their dogs actually, um, rather than working for food or toy, um, you know, like the pointer type dogs, their reward is the hunt and mm -hmm. the pointing of you know that the bird that they're looking for yeah so there's also that so we're not quite there yet <laughs> but it's just so interesting to me because the mystery of the working dog gets deeper and deeper for me the more questions that i ask because you know if you work with a small group of conservation dogs you know you know that group and you know what how they work and so you just kind of assume that it's that way for everybody but the more i branch out and the more that i see the different types of work that you do and the different training techniques that you have. It's fascinating to me to see that there's so much more to it than just throw the ball. Like the dog's not just working for the dog. Some of these dogs work just for the love of the work, which- Right. Yeah, that's, that's I'm a border collie in human form and I will work just for, a, for the work and then maybe a good girl when I'm done, you know? So I don't need a ball or a treat. And right. it's amazing to me to find that there's actually dogs out there that that feel that way. And you can you can take that and shape that behavior into a conservation dog and begin to help the environment and help 
help the wildlife that you're that you're studying. So what you're doing is actually amazing. And you're probably the most complex trainer that I have talked to in quite a long time. Oh, I wouldn't say I'm complex, but I'm glad that you're um, getting something out of this. In yeah. fact, that <laughs> it reminds me of um, actually solo, an incident, funny incident with solo at the wildlife refuge. Um, we, at the beginning of this avian botulism project, um, the, you know, the PI and the field tech and I were kind of testing out our GPS devices mm -hmm. to see, you know, whether we can mark the waypoints properly and, you know, record the tracks. So we were just doing some very simple, like two or three hide searches with the dogs just so that we can test our devices. And um, Bodhi, who is the other dog that I was working there, she would find the hides get rewarded, go back to her crate and was perfectly happy. But Solo started to um, not find some of the hides. Like, mm -hmm. and, you know, we started wondering, oh, is there something wrong with the, you know, training aid or is there something wrong with the airflow? Is he not catching the scent? You know, and then after thinking about it, we realized that, okay, it's always a second hide that he's not finding <laughs> because he realizes that after the second hide in this quick search, he would get put back in his crate and he couldn't hunt anymore. So, you know, it seems obvious now, but at the time we were so focused on the, you know, GPS devices that we didn't think about that. And so after that, you know, we changed the number of hides. And in fact, you know, there could be no hides at all. And as long as he got to hunt, he was mm -hmm. happy. And so what, motivates you to do this work? Well, now that I am more familiar with the conservation needs and the actual wildlife and environment in Hawaii, I think that that is the main um, motivator for me to do something mm -hmm. positive for the environment and for the wildlife. Um, but um, yeah, the dogs definitely motivate me too. You know, I get up every morning and you know, they're, they're always ready to go. So mm -hmm. yeah, it makes it me want to do something for them. And, and what is your favorite thing about Solo? About Solo? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, I think his enthusiasm, he's always up for anything. I don't think he's ever, you know, laid down and said, no, it's too hot or, mm -hmm. you know, it's too boring or nothing. He never says no. He's, he's yeah. always like, okay, let's do this. That's amazing. I, think I like that enthusiasm. Yeah. So if you could give advice to your younger self or, you, or you're speaking to you know, a 15, 16 year old girl, what advice would you give them if they're looking to have a career with dogs? With detection dogs or just, just dogs, dogs in, in general? general. Yeah, in general. dogs in general. Yeah, I actually laughed so hard when I listened to your interview with Christian from um, Texas, <laughs> because I think he said money, have a lot of money. <laughs> have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's really true because you don't make a lot of money training nope. dogs, no matter what field it is. Exactly. Um, but that aside, I think just learning as much as you can about dogs and not just one aspect of it, like scent detection, but, um, you know, obedience training, behavior modification, um, you know, scent detection, um, bite, whatever it is, body language. Yeah. yeah, I think you can learn so much from all types of training. So if you're enthusiastic and you reach out to trainers, apprentice with them, volunteer for different groups and learn as much as you can, I think um, that's probably what I'd recommend to younger people who want to get into it. If you weren't a working dog partner, what would you be doing? <laughs> so that's kind of funny because I can't really think of anything I'd rather do now right. than working with dogs, but I recently 
um, became very interested in rodents. So training rodents. Yes. I have pet rats, uh, which I originally got to be training aids for our rodent detection dogs. Mm -hmm. But in that process, I fell in love with rodents um, as pets. And so Aww. now I'm working on a pilot project to use scent detection rats. Mm -hmm. And I think if I couldn't work with dogs, let's say I'm old and frail and I can't run around with the dogs, I'd probably train rats full time. So <laughs> yeah, they're sure actually really smart and very lovable too. They really are. They're super smart. And I'm sure you're aware of the rat detection um, teams over in say Africa. Yes, I'm absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I follow them, the mind detection rats. Yes. They're amazing and they're big too. They're like this big. Yeah. <laughs> And so fascinating. I did see that on your website and I thought we would touch on that because there is a correlation between the work that they do and the work that the dogs do. So knowing that, that that's a passion of yours, I'm making a mental note of that. And that's something we're going to discuss in a future podcast. So like you cool. can plan on being back on the podcast. There's <laughs> a lot of you to unwrap. Like I said, you are probably one of the most complex trainers that I've met because you're your interests are varied and they're wide and you're super smart about dogs and super smart about rats. So there's a lot to unwrap there. So let's say you and Solo have been out working and you've had a really tough day. How would you guys decompress? Well, his favorite way to decompress is going to the beach and swimming, um, fetching the ball from the water. So um, that's usually what we do after a long day of work. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, places like Johnston Atoll, where we went, um, there were beaches that we could go to between, you know, working in the morning and afternoon. So he really enjoys that. And um, how, do, how do you decompress? How do I? I, I have an IPA. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, we, um, Michelle, um, who is the dog handler that I hired to help me on the Johnston Atoll ant project you know she and i took like a big case of ipa on the ship um, so that we go. could have one at the end of each day three and a half uh, three and a half day trip correct? one way right where does a dog go to the bathroom on a ship oh they had to go on deck and fortunately it was uh, a wood deck so it's kind of natural substrate but you know the dogs would not pee or poo for the first 24 hours mm -hmm. and we took them out constantly because we thought they were going to get clogged up but uh yeah. they wouldn't go for 24 hours and we kind of gave up um, towards the end and then they just like let it all out. So yeah. after that, it was no problem. Isn't um, that something? Cause you can't reason with a dog to go to the bathroom. So. Right. Yeah. It was a little bit like, um, you know, potty training a puppy, you know, mm -hmm. the first time they did go, you know, I praised them like, you know, heck and gave them lots of treats and hoped that the next time wouldn't be 24 hours again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause you have to worry about a UTI or. Um, right. A blockage in their in their bowels so yeah. yeah so my last question is how can we support you the listeners and I how can we support you and the work that you and your dog do oh uh, please follow our journey on Instagram or Facebook okay. uh, we also have a website www.conservationdogshawaii.org okay. um, we have a donation link on our website as well as um, we have a t-shirt and sticker campaign right now featuring Ooh. a new um, devil weed dog design that we I had designed yeah this. and then um, next month we're actually hosting a um, webinar with guest instructor terry ryan she actually lives in washington your area i think so she's gonna um, teach a webinar on um, just preparing animals whether it's chickens or rats or dogs for a training task 
Um, so that's going to be a fundraiser webinar. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Kyoko. It was amazing to talk to you. I am sure that I'm going, to be talk- I'm going to be talking to you again in the future. I have no question about that. You are a very interesting person and I would love to get to know you better. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Working Dog Collective podcast. I've been your host, Holly of Holly Cook Photography based in Seattle, Washington. This is a listener supported podcast and details about how you can support this podcast for as little as $5 a month are provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining me on this journey of exploration into the world of working dogs. Let's get to work.